Open your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel chapter 12. This will be our our last sermon in Samuel for a couple weeks, as uh, we're going to take a break to focus in on our Easter emphasis, and uh, we'll come back to Samuel after uh, after Easter. Uh, But I thought this was a good place to to break uh, with the book, as uh, chapter 12 uh, involves what would basically be Samuel's last, his final public speech. Uh, he's going to continue serving as a prophet. He's going to continue ministering for uh, several years after this. But um, this is really his his stepping down in terms of a leadership position per se. Um, this is an important time in Israel's life. The, the transition has now been made to a monarchy. Uh, Saul proved his uh, at least his capacity to be king, as we looked at last week, whether or not he's going to follow through with that in the, the years that follow. Uh, we'll see, uh, but he's at least demonstrated he has the capacity to to lead the way God would have uh, his king lead his people. Um, and so Samuel is now going to step to the side. But before he does that, he wants to to leave the people with um, some truths that he hopes they operate by. Uh, final speeches, farewell speeches can be very significant events. George Washington's final address uh, to the country, which actually wasn't a speech, it was just written. He never actually delivered it verbally. Um, but it was a very important uh, expression in which he uh, communicated his desire that his uh, successors follow him with, by serving no more than two terms as president and uh, arguing against. Um, Political parties, Washington hated the idea of political parties and, and hoped that America would never develop them. Um, that one didn't work out so well. <laughs> that wish um, did not come to fruition at all. Um, but basically, he, he, he cried for, he, he begged for America's unity. That was his, his hope. And as we know, that didn't last very long either. The Civil War happening within just a couple decades after that, several decades after that. And in some ways, Samuel's final speech doesn't really come to fruition either. Except that Samuel's final speech is focused in primarily, firstly, lastly, on God. Who is God to Israel? That's what Samuel's desire is. He's, he wants to once more present the God of Israel to Israel to remind them who they serve, to remind them what he is capable of, to remind them what it means to, to serve a, a God of this nature. And, and there's, there's two elements that, that he presents about God, and these are very consistently presented about God throughout. The first is judgment. He does talk about God's wrath. He does talk about God's judgment. He talks about God's right to judge, that as the sovereign Lord, as the ruler of the universe, as the rightful king of Israel himself, God has the right to judge his people. That is his privilege. That is his prerogative. But it's the second element that, that Samuel really wants Israel to hear because he understands its power, and it's what I want us to hear today as well. I have a 
picture I'll show you here. You know who those two gentlemen are? Friday was the 17th, which is what? St. Patrick's Day. So these are two very well-known Irishmen. Okay. Uh, the one on the left is C.S. Lewis. He's well-known for his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Mere Christianity, his apologetics work. Uh, very important writer uh, on Christian issues. The one on the right is, anybody? That's Bono, okay? Lead singer of U2. Okay. Now, besides both being Irishmen, both are, were, at least for Lewis, believers. And both had something very important to say about why they believe Christianity is significant. Lewis basically said, Christianity is different than every other religion because of one simple truth, grace. No other religion, no other practice, no other man-made mentality out there follows through with, understands, teaches, advocates the idea of grace. It is what makes Christianity distinct. Bono, similarly, in an interview, was asked about karma. The interviewer said, well, what do you think about karma? Are, are, are you living this good life? Are you experiencing this success because of karma? And he says, oh, heavens, no. I don't believe in karma. He says, if karma were real, if karma were true, if karma were uh, how the universe worked, I would be in trouble most of all. I believe in grace, God's grace, and that he has saved me by it. And that's what Samuel wants us to understand today as well. He wants us to understand the grace of God. He wants us to see in this speech, in this outline, in this discussion of who God is. That first and foremost, at the end of the day, God is grace. And so he begins his speech, first of all, by creating a sense of legitimacy. Do I have the right to even speak to you? Samuel basically says. He says, he says, have I done anybody any, any wrong? Have I, have I cheated anybody? Have I, have I, have I taken from somebody something that I shouldn't have taken? Have I not earned my wages? Have I not earned a place of respect? And all the people said, no, you are a man of honor. We respect you. We see you. We, we recognize God's hand upon you, that God has led you, and you have led us through God's guidance. And Samuel says, okay, that being the case, buckle up. Here we go. Because I need to show you and I need to reveal to you what God's work is. And so in verses 6 through, uh, through 12, he gives them a history lesson. He basically just reminds them of their journey. He talks about how God uh, appointed Moses and Aaron and how Moses and Aaron led Israel out of Egypt. And how when they got out of Egypt, they, they got into the land and, and there were all of these, these opponents here, Sisera, the commander of the army of Hansor, and the, the Philistines and the Boabites. And how all these 
enemies fought against Israel. And how Israel, for a time, said, let us put away our false god. Let us put away our Baals and our Ashtoreths. Let us stop worshiping the, the gods of the nations. God rescued them through the judges, Samuel said. And then Nahash, guy we looked at last week in chapter 11, Nahash of the Ammonites arises and what? The king that God appointed delivered you from Nahash. Over and over and over again, you have sinned against God. You've turned away from God. You have disobeyed God. And over and over and over again, God has rescued you. Now, therefore, verse 16, now, therefore, present yourselves and see this great thing that Yahweh will do before your eyes. Isn't the wheat harvest today? I will call on Yahweh, and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize what immense evil you committed in, God, in his sight by requesting a king for yourself. It's an act of judgment. You don't want rain on the day of harvest, or anywhere near harvest for that matter. It's not good for the crops. It's a good way to get mildew and rot and other things and to, to ruin your, your harvest, to, to make it unusable. Samuel wants to point out once again that God as God and as king, as sovereign, has this right to this judgment. And, and we need to remember that. We always need to keep at the foremost of our mind, God has the right to judge us. So often, we operate from a, a, a mentality of God owing us something or life not being fair. And therefore, how can God make it more unfair by judging us? Or some mentality like that. We, we build these, these cases for how we are above judgment or how we're beyond judgment. No, we deserve it. And God has the right to it. And Samuel establishes that here in this exchange. And the people cry out, verse 19, Pray to Yahweh, your God, for your servants so we won't die. Now there's a, there's a little bit of a trouble there in that, in that exchange. Is there not? Pray to Yahweh, who's God? Your God. Israel doesn't quite get it. They don't quite understand. The whole reason judgment is coming out is because God is their God. And those whom God loves, God chastens. He corrects. But Samuel calls out, he says, Do not be afraid, even though you have committed all this evil. Don't turn away from following Yahweh. Don't abandon him. Don't... don't don't make him just my God at this point. No, instead, follow him. And verse 22, he will not 
abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Don't turn away from him because he's not going to turn away from you. That's grace. God does not abandon his own. Though we may deserve it, though we do deserve it. He won't abandon us. He won't walk away from us. So what are some truths in this in this in this speech, in this exchange that we can say about grace that, that carries forward to us as well? That that hopefully will help us to walk with more confidence and more clarity and more conviction in our journey before God. Number one, grace is generous in its communication. It's plentiful. It's boundless. Samuel makes that clear two ways in his speech here. He says, says, first of all, I want you to understand that God is great in his graciousness, that his grace is balanced because of what? Your whole history is nothing but grace. Your whole history is nothing but you rejecting God, turning away from God, walking away from God, and God saying, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. You need a reminder? I'll send you a reminder. You need a a Savior to come in? I'll send you a Savior. I'll send you a momentary Savior. Eventually, I'm going to send you an eternal Savior. When I read the Old Testament, when I I read Scripture, and I, I see just how many times Israel turned away from God, I'm like, what will it take? for you to get it. And then I look at myself and I say, what will it take for you to get it? This grace just keeps on being poured out. This just keeps on being expressed and and keeps on finding its expression in Israel's life and experience. But there's there's a second way that it's kind of hidden just a little bit in Samuel's words. And that is that God loved us before we even knew who he was. And even though he knew perfectly who we are. Notice in, in verse 6, he says, Samuel, Samuel said to the people, The Lord, Yahweh, appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt is a witness. Then in verse 8, then he sent Moses and Aaron who led you, led your ancestors out of Egypt. What's he saying there? He's saying in the first sentence, before Israel was even in captivity, before Israel even needed a deliverer, God had already appointed Moses and Aaron to have his mission. Then, when the events transpire and they need him, he sends them. 
And is that not the case for how we relate to God through Jesus Christ? Before the foundation of the earth, Christ was what? Predestined, foreordained to die on the cross in our place. Before man even existed, before sin existed, God was already responding to it by foreordaining his son to die so that we might live. Now you might say, why didn't he just make it so that we didn't sin in the first place? Why didn't he just act that way? That would have made more sense than, okay, they're going to sin, so I'm going to prepare for that sin ahead of time and, and all that. Why didn't he just make it so we were perfect? Because he created out of love. And love always has at its heart choice. The ability of the other person to choose. If you're forced into it, if, you, if it's imposed on you, even if, even if you don't know you're being forced into it or it's being imposed on you, it's not love. God wanted a relationship with why? Because God is relational. The Trinity, if there's one thing the Trinity teaches us, it's that God is relational. Three persons, one God. And that's how it's been throughout eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, co-eternal, co-equal throughout eternity. That's who He is. He is relational. And so to create us is what? It's just an outgrowth of His nature. But for that to work, there has to be some sort of response. For there to be response, there has to be a choice to go the opposite way. So he permitted that. Just think of it in terms of, of your own children or children that you've worked with. You know, you what? You all through their, their early stages, you're teaching them to say thank you. Say please. Say I love you. Say goodbye. Say hello. You're, you're teaching them all these proper quote responses. But there's that moment, there's that moment in which it all shifts from being something that you've taught them, or they say because they have to say it, to where they say it with sincerity where it grows out of their genuine connection to you, their emotional tie to you, their relationship with you. And suddenly that hug means something just a little bit more. And that thank you means something just a, a little bit extra. God has built that relational capacity into us as well. And so we see in a small way there what he would in Experience in a big way in relationship to all of creation. That moment when it's reciprocated, not because he needs it, but because that's just who he is. He's relational. So God has given us his grace 
even before we needed his grace. That's amazing. And again, it shows that how, how important and how powerful it is because it's not like God was like, oh man, they sinned. I guess I got a choice to make at this point. Am I going to forgive them or just wipe them out? What should I do? The reality of what is what he says, they sinned. I knew this was coming. Guess what? I already prepared for it. It's already built in to how I'm going to relate to them. That's what's so amazing about his grace. He's not ever surprised by our sorriness. Secondly, it's limitless in its expression. It's not three strikes and you're out. Not the first or even the second chance. It's over and over again. We, we pointed out here, but, but we, I think we see even more clearly in Jesus' words when Peter asked him about forgiving others. How often should we forgive? Seven times, Lord? Being pretty generous there, aren't I, God? I'm a pretty good guy. No, Peter. Seventy times. Seven. What? What on earth do you mean, seventy times seven? I'm not even sure I can keep track of that many sins of people. That's the point. You're not to be keeping track. You're just supposed to be forgiven. There's another aspect to that forgiveness that's beyond just the amount of times. It's, it's the, the depth of the sin as well, seriousness of the sin. Because I believe Jesus is commenting on, on a passage in Genesis, chapter 4. This is the, the lineage of Cain. And as Cain's lineage goes on, you finally get to an individual named Lamech. And if you remember when when Cain was punished, God put the mark of what? Of grace on Cain, saying nobody is to touch him. That's what the mark was. It was nothing but God's grace of protection on Cain. And he says if anybody does hurt Cain or bother Cain or in any way damage Cain, then they will be punished sevenfold. When you get you go on through the journey and come to Lamech, and Lamech is, is at this point he's bragging and he says what? He says, I killed a man for, for bruising me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is avenged seventy times seven. The exact same situation is just flip from forgiveness to vengeance. What is Lamech meant to reveal to us? What is he meant to relate? What Lamech re relates to us, what Lamech communicates to us is that in our sinfulness, in our in our perspective, in, in our outlook, how we operate, how we function, we 
are always willing to go overboard in repayment. Well beyond what someone may deserve. I mean, just think about it. In, in your, the grudges you've held and the grudges I've held, we never get the person back evenly for what they did to us. We always want. We always at least one up them. And Lamech is saying, I am so far removed from God's plan for how we deal with each other that I'm going to go well beyond what anybody would expect. A man bruised me, so I killed him. That's who I am. So I believe that when Jesus is talking to Peter, he's not just talking about how many times he forgives. I believe he's also saying to Peter, this is the mech went overboard in vengeance. I want you to go overboard in forgiveness. It's not just how many times you forgive. It's what you're willing to forgive. You should be forgiving things that people think is, it's unimaginable that anybody would forgive somebody for that. It's unimaginable that you would look at that person and say, I forgive you. Corey Tin Boone and her stories concerning the, her time in the concentration camps in Germany, some of her most poignant stories, for me at least, are her stories with interactions with guards after she's been released. And all the different experiences she had with different guards who had, who had been there at the concentration camps. And how one in particular uh, heard that she was speaking and came to her, her time and, and afterwards came up to her and was telling her, I'm a believer too now. And he put his hand out to shake her hand. Now put yourself in that position. This is a man who had oversaw the death of your family members, who had oversaw the death of thousands of others. And he's standing in front of you and he's saying, I'm a believer too. What are you doing in that moment? How do you find forgiveness in that moment? But she says it wasn't easy. I had to force my hand in his hand. But as I did, and as I shook his hand, I felt the power of grace moving through my arm to my whole body and just was enveloped in the forgiveness of God. That sort of grace doesn't come from who we are. It comes from who God is through us. Why? Because that's what God has continually done for us over and over and over again. He forgives us. He's gracious to us. And because of that, we see thirdly that grace is transformative in its application. I find it really interesting how, how Samuel links together the people's cry for a king with the victory the king has just brought right there in verse 12 and 13. It says, you cried for a king. This was a sin against God. And what God has used that sin 
to save you in this moment. Wow. God uses our sin sometimes as an instrument of his grace. Think about that. It was sin, our sin, that put Jesus on the cross. And that's what? That is the greatest expression of his grace. I'm going to take your sin, and I'm going to so work it, manipulate it, move it, so that that itself becomes the tool by which I'm going to show my grace to you. Think about that. Think about the, the, the power that's displayed there. I'm not just going to, to say, okay, you sinned. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to take that sin itself. And I'm going to reshape it so that it's your salvation. Isn't that what Joseph meant when he was talking to his brothers? What you designed for evil, God determined to be good. God used your sin of selling me into slavery, leaving me for dead, to ultimately rescue you from your own starvation. Your sin became God's instrument of salvation. That's what Samuel's saying here. Your sin in asking for a king has become God's instrument of saving you from the Ammonites. Our sin becomes the instrument that God used on the cross to turn that cruel cross into something wondrous and gracious. Why does he do this? Number one, because he can. Number two, because that's how he's built. One of my favorite passages is Zephaniah 3.17. It says, Yahweh your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, he will exult over you with loud singing. What a picture of God. We talk about when someone comes to Christ, oh, the angels are singing today. One who was lost has come home. That's true. I don't doubt that a bit. But Zephaniah says what? God singing and dancing. Is that a picture you have of God? It's not a very common one. We think of God as maybe a loving father who, who brings you in and hugs you real tight. Somebody who's there who gently listens and so forth. You know, when you have problems. That's how we think of the Father, right? But Zephaniah says, ah, uh, on the day of salvation, he's singing and dancing over you. 
God the Father singing and dancing in heaven over one who's come home. He's not just happy, he's thrilled. That's grace. That's amazing grace. Because as Paul says, we're rebellious, traitorous, lecherous people who have told God nothing but I hate you and I don't need you. That's what our sin says. That's what our sin communicates. And he says, I love you. I love you. I'm going to send my son to die for you. And when you come to me, when you make that decision, when you make that commitment, I'm going to sing and dance. If you're not in awe of your salvation, either you don't understand it or it didn't happen. We talk about the miraculous. Why don't we see more miracles? We see a miracle every time a dead person comes to life when they come to Christ. A traitor becomes a child when they accept Christ as their Savior. We see miracles every day. It's a miracle you can play a part in. I can play a part in. God has invited each of us to be a part of that magnificent miracle of seeing lives change when they accept Christ. And yet we keep the gospel to ourselves. Brother Tim, I want to see a miracle. Share the gospel. And you'll see miracles begin to happen. You'll see lives changed. Broken people made whole. Today, my question is simply this. Have you experienced the grace of God in your own life to the point to where you've given your life to him and experienced the salvation that only he can offer, the life that only he can grant, the joy that only he can cause you to experience? If your answer is yes, praise God. count you among my brothers and my sisters. But why aren't you sharing it more with the world that needs it? We moan and we complain and we worry about the changing culture. We're not going to win the culture wars in the ballot box. We're only going to win the culture wars when we change people's hearts through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
That's the way God designed it. That's what God has called us to. If you're here and you haven't experienced that salvation, you've never come to that place where you've given your life to Christ, what on earth are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? He's waiting with arms wide open. He's done everything that's necessary. It's not any work that you do. All you have to do is accept and begin that walk, that journey with him. It's a relationship. And every relationship begins what? When both parties come together and say, hey, let's be in a relationship. Be my friend. Jesus wants to be your friend, but in order for him to be your friend, he also has to be your Lord, your master. Let me say, that's not, that's not a hard thing to accept either if you realize who it is you're giving yourself to. The one who before you even existed already loved you already made a plan for you and who will never leave or forsake you. All you have to do is give yourself to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. Thank you for each person here. I thank you for those who are my brothers and sisters. God, those whom you have redeemed by your grace, transformed by your power. God, I pray that you would lay a burden on their heart and, and mine as well, Lord, that we would be more overt, more open, more committed to sharing the miracle of salvation with the world around us. God, I also pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, doesn't have a relationship with anyone, that you would draw them in your power. That they would experience that tug of their spirit, realizing they need something more. They need something real. They need you. And that they would respond by coming forward giving their life to you. Lord, please use this time for your kingdom, for your glory. In Christ's name I pray.